Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Rocking them pads right now. <laughs> Keep them going. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be. And I'm waiting for my notes here to load up. And if they don't, we'll just go with it. Maybe eventually they'll come up. Um, until they do, I at least kind of remember the intro. Um, so most of you uh, know that I'm from uh, a small rural town in Tennessee, about 20 miles north of Nashville called White House, Tennessee. And my family moved there in 1994 when there was probably about uh, 3,000 people in the town. Um, and it was the town was essentially kind of a tobacco and football town like that was kind of what the town was was known for and and I really kind of benefited from both of those things um, not just tobacco in the sense of like smoking tobacco but um, from the sense that like that was my job when I was in high school was working in tobacco fields um, and then at the same time playing football and um, I don't know how like schools kind of like worked out for you guys when you were in high school but like each semester for us we had four blocks that were an hour and a half each um, and this is this just kind of lets you into kind of how White House is wired. Um, is the first block that I had was a career-based block, and so like if there was a job um, in the city or town or village, I don't even know what we really called it, um, that was kind of outside that helped better the economy, then you could actually get excused from class and go be a part of that. Um, and so White House, the only thing that you could do to actually be excused from class was to go cut tobacco. And so uh, the first hour and a half of my day was actually me just going and working in a tobacco barn. Um, and then the fourth block of the day uh, was actually just set aside for football. So if you were a football player, then, then that was your block. And so my education was really just kind of from like 1030 to 1 o'clock. Um, <laughs> So, like, and if you're saying, like, that explains a lot, then, like, shame on you. But, um, but essentially, like, that was, that was what uh, my upbringing was. And, and so because of that, the, the two primary people um, that were an influence in my life were tobacco farmers and football coaches. Um, and so specifically, um, the people that kind of come to mind for me was my defensive backs coach, um, on the football team. His name was Coach Grantham. And if you've ever seen Waterboy, the assistant coach that mumbles, like that was Coach Grantham for me. I mean, he, he literally, like, we could not understand a word that came out of his mouth. Um, and he would always just kind of nickname people. And like, like the first minute he met you, whatever came out of his mouth like, was your name for those four years. Like, I don't, he never knew Dwayne was my actual name. Like, he, he literally called me Gibby Gilbert for four years. Um, because that was the first thing when I said, yeah, my name is Dwayne Gibbs, Gibby Gilbert. All right, great, we'll roll with that. 
So he was like one of my biggest influencers. And then the farmers, uh, there were two guys specifically, one named Tom Baird and the other named David Marlin. Uh, David Marlin was kind of more of a lawn care guy who kind of got me into that business as well. But he also worked on farms. And, and these were, again, a couple of guys who it literally took me probably three years to understand how they pronounced their own names, Tom and Dave, um, just because they were so backwoods. Um, and then if you've had the pleasure of being able to like uh, meet my dad and have a conversation with him, um, you'll learn quickly that you're going to need me present to be able to interpret what's actually coming out of his mouth because in White House, uh, the Gibbs family are known for what is just known as uh, gibbish. Um, and so like we have our kind of our own language uh, that kind of starts off slow and then just mumbles out like it just the sentence never finishes. You just don't know where it's going. Um, and so this is my upbringing. Um, so when Kelsey met me about nine, ten years ago, um, I had what you would consider a southern draw. Uh, I had a very different kind of dialect in, in which I spoke, in which I would communicate. Um, and, and so much, th there are some YouTube videos out there that you can find that kind of draw back to, to those days, but I'm not going to tell you what the title are. You've got to find them yourself. Um, but anyways, it, it, was, it was at times hard to understand what was coming out of my mouth um, because of the environment in which I was raised. And so as I was graduating high school and as I was going off to college, that was right around the time that I was filling the call to full-time vocational ministry. Um, and, so, and, and, and then at the same time, I was trying to figure out what do I do in college? Like what, what major do I uh, study? What, what, what should be my concentration? And at first, just because of where I came from, my natural tendency was to do kind of landscape architecture. I was interested in landscaping. I was interested in lawn care. And so I was like, you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to always kind of have something on the side, then I want it to be kind of that realm. And so that was kind of what I started out in college was just landscape architecture until I took my first biology class on soil and then realized I really don't care like the six different terms that are for soil. I just want to put flowers in the ground and like water them. Um, and so I quickly realized that that's not what I wanted to do um, as far as the concentration. So the other side is God's kind of determining what he's going to be doing with me for the rest of my life. I knew if I'm going to be in ministry, that means I'm going to be speaking and teaching and preaching and, and public speaking is going to be a big deal of what I do. So if God, if, you, if that's what you're calling me to do, people are going to need to understand what comes out of my mouth. And so at that point, I said, you know what, I think I need to take a different turn and actually go into just communications. Uh, what do communications look like? And specifically, my uh, major had a concentration in what we just call voice and diction. And I remember going into my first voice and diction class, and they, just, they said, we want you to come up, and we want you just to tell your story. Um, and so I got up, and I told my story, and I actually remember having a conversation with the teacher at the end of it. She said, I think... You have the, you're my greatest challenge for this semester, uh, which I was like, I don't know how to take that. I'm going to take it as a compliment, but either way, she said, yeah, there's just a lot that you round out um, when it comes to the way in which you communicate. So I was like, okay, fine. Um, and, and, and at the same time, too, I think, and I know some of y'all still think I have a southern draw, and I know I do, um, but it was way different. And, and a lot of times people also think, like, 
a southern drawl or a southern accent is like charming um, and attractive and whatnot. Like that's kind of the general rule of thumb. But like that wasn't me. Like mine was more of the one you see on the news when a tornado goes through a trailer park <laughs> and they find the one guy who's like, y'all ain't going to believe what just happened. Like, like that is what was brought up for me. So as I'm moving into this kind of role of ministry, I knew my dialect has the potential to be essentially a stumbling block. Like it's not going to allow me to be able to clearly articulate and define the gospel message. Like I don't want like my accent or my draw uh, to, to really at any time be a hindrance towards the message that is actually being proclaimed. And I know, like, again, like, I'm a, I'm a sovereign guy. Like, I, I, I reform theology. Like, I believe that God is fully in control over all of salvation. But at the same time, there are certain things in our lives that can be stumbling blocks, that can cause hindrances towards the message in which we ultimately want to proclaim. And you might be wondering, like, how in the world does this tie into what we're going to be talking about today? Um, but I think it does as we introduce this Timothy character um, as Paul and Barnabas, or as Paul and Silas. Now Paul and Barnabas have separated. We saw that last week. But Paul and Silas, as they're going out on this second missionary journey, they pull in Timothy. And they do something with Timothy that is very contradictory towards what was just argued a couple of weeks before in a council at Jerusalem around the topic of circumcision. And so we're going to dive in and look at this, and I will connect kind of these two things of, of what happened to me based on my upbringing and also what happened to Timothy based on his upbringing that actually created an open door for gospel clarity to be proclaimed. So Acts chapter 16, picking it up in verse 1, we'll start there. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So a couple of facts um, that we see about Timothy from this passage. The first one in verse 1 is, he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. So Timothy's a believer He's all in on Jesus Christ. He's saved by Jesus Christ. He's a student of Christ. He's literally a disciple, a pupil of wanting to study the truth, the way, and the life that is found in Christ alone. So he is a disciple of Jesus. The second thing we see is that his mother was Jewish and also a believer or disciple of Jesus Christ. His mother mentions, um, or Paul mentions the fact that his mother and his grandmother in 2 Timothy 1.5 were devout believers who raised Timothy to know Jesus, who gave him full access to understanding um, or to having access to the knowledge of the gospel, to having access to the teaching of the gospel, to having access to uh, those who were, who, who were in leadership in preaching and proclaiming the gospel. She did her work in making sure that Timothy had all access to know Jesus, just like she knows Jesus. 
verse 3, or not verse 3, the third part, his father was a Gentile, and the scripture infers that he was not a believer, not a disciple of Jesus Christ. If he were, a couple of things would have happened. If he were, as we're introducing Timothy here, just as Luke mentions that his mother is Jewish, but also a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's important to, to make sure you're, you're seeing a, a, a difference or, or distinctness made there. Um, because again, there's the Jewish way of doing things. There's Judaism. There's, there's the kind of belief in that that is not necessarily believing in Jesus Christ as Messiah. They're still looking for a Messiah. But yet you can be Jewish who comes to know Christ and still have Jewish lineage. And so that's his mother. She is a Jew who has converted to Christianity, who is believing in Christianity. And then there's also the other flip side. Everyone who's not Jewish is Gentile. They're Greek. So they are opposite of that in every facet, in tradition, in customs, in way of life, in, in their mind, their worldview. Everything is anti-Jewish customs. They are Gentile. They are Greek. And this is his father. And so, but at the same time, anytime you come across someone in Scripture who is Gentile but also is Christ-believing or God-fearing, it makes mention of that. It makes mention of the fact that they have also converted to Christianity. And so it's important for Luke to draw kind of a line here that his mother is of Jewish ascent but also is a believer in Christ. His father is Gentile, but does not make mention of him being a believer in Jesus Christ. Even when it comes to 2 Timothy 1.5, when Paul is, again, mentioning the lineage of discipleship that has been passed down to Timothy, only mentions his mother and his grandmother, makes no mention of his father. And they would because they champion the fact that Gentiles come to faith. And so to have a Gentile father who would have come to faith, who is then passing down discipleship, passing down biblical truth, gospel truth, would be made mention because, again, they, they want to champion that at all times. The fourth thing is that he had a great reputation. He had gained a very good character among the Christians. He was well spoken of by the brothers that were at Lystra and Iconium. He had not only an unblemished reputation and was free from scandal, but he had a bright reputation as an extraordinary young man, one from whom great things were expected. So not only those in the place where he was born, but those in the neighboring cities. His reputation had grown so much that even the neighboring, neighboring cities were honor, honoring him. So that's what we see in just the first two verses of this passage. And, and honestly, there's nothing contradictory about that. There's nothing at this point that would like kind of raise our senses and be like, man, that sounds weird compared to what we had just heard a couple of sermons ago. Verse 3 is where this happens. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, we know circumcision is not a prerequisite to join Paul's ministry. Paul just made that argument. He just opposed the council at Jerusalem for them imposing circumcision as a prerequisite in order for you to really be a part of the family of Christ, the family of God. And so Paul's coming to them and saying, in opposition, you do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to impose that 
way of doing things, that tradition, that custom, onto these new Gentile believers. Rather, they're just free in Christ because of all the work that Christ has done, not any work that they have to do. Because technically, the process of circumcision is a work that they are using to essentially set themselves apart or make themselves better. It's to identify who's a part of the real chosen family of God in the Jewish custom and who's not. And so that's why they made it such a big deal that on the eighth day of the child being born that a Jewish boy would be circumcised because we are essentially setting him apart from birth in order for him to be seen, signified as of the family of God, the chosen Israelite tradition. And now he's saying it's not done by anything that is external that we are to work towards in order to signify that we are a part of the family of God, but rather it's something that Christ has done in his life, his death, his resurrection, his work, that now is imputed to us, given to us, free. So we do not have to do this. But yet, here, Paul is taking Timothy and having him circumcised, who is technically a Gentile. Timothy, even though he has a Jewish mother, they go by way of the father determining as far as whether or not you're going to be Jewish or Gentile. So because his father was a Greek, Timothy would be considered a Gentile. So Paul, again, has just opposed the argument that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be in the faith. And yet he takes Timothy and gets him circumcised. Or at least orders it. I'm not sure if Paul actually did it or not, but he at least ordered it. So why would he do this? Why would Paul order this circumcision when he has just won an argument against doing such a thing? Look at verse 3 again. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews. Because of the Jews. For they all knew his father was a Greek. Matthew Henry in a commentary says that Paul took him and circumcised him or ordered it to be done. This was strange. Had he not just opposed this with all his might that were for imposing circumcision upon the Gentile converts. Had he not at this time the decrees of the council at Jerusalem with him, which witnessed against it. He did it because of the Jews, not to oblige them by keeping the ceremonial law, but only to render his conversion and ministry passable, if even acceptable, among the Jews. What he's saying here is, he sees the reputation of Timothy. He sees the extraordinary young man that Timothy has become because he is a disciple of Christ. And what he's saying is, I believe that Timothy's ministry is going to be so impactful and so profound, not only to Gentiles as they go on the missionary journeys, but he also believes that he will be very impactful towards those who are considered Jewish. And because he does not want any type of stumbling block in the way of Timothy being able to reach the Jews, he's going to oblige them by having him circumcised so that they will at least have a conversation and hear him. So that they will actually be able to not just dismiss him away as an uncircumcised Gentile, but someone in which they can signify, hey, he's willing to do this in order to have a conversation with us in order to actually, in some way or another, align with us when it comes to con condition or um, culture when it comes to this. 
He was against those who made circumcision necessary to salvation, but he used it himself when it was conducive for edification. So he's against anything that we would say, you must do this in order to receive salvation. Paul's going to oppose that to the core because the gospel is grace. It's given to us freely. Nothing that we have to earn, nothing that we have to work for. Christ has done it. But in order for that message to then be proclaimed, he's willing for us to be able to lay aside freedoms or even take on things that aren't considered freedoms in order for us to have a better opportunity to be able to take that free grace and that free gospel to those who would not hear it otherwise, who would not be willing to listen. Another passage that I want you to turn over to be able to see the Apostle Paul lay out this argument in a lot more detail is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So I want you to turn over there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I actually want to back it up a little bit in, ver- in uh, chapter 8. Uh, looking at verse 8. And this is around the topic of food. Like what's, what's good to eat, what's not good to eat, what can we eat, what can we not eat, what's clean, what's considered unclean. And so they're having this argument in the church that there's, there's sort of this um, debate going on as to what can they participate in that would kind of be considered, this is good, this is right, you should do this, this is not good, this is not right, you should not do this. And so Paul comes in and he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. What he's basically saying there is, it doesn't matter what you're putting in your body, essentially, from a food perspective. There's, there's nothing under creation that God is deeming clean or unclean. And what he ultimately says is basically if, it's, if you are giving thanksgiving and seeing that God has blessed you with this, partake of it. You are free to partake of it. This is really kind of getting around the idea of, of bacon for Jews. Like can we eat pigs? This is the biggest argument throughout all of, of Scripture is there was the ceremonial law of the Old Testament that considered pigs unclean, so do not partake of those. And then moving into the New Covenant, God looking at everything, he's making a point here that yes, there can be something that's unclean that can be made clean because of the work of Jesus Christ. So it's never been about a pig, whether they could eat it or not eat it, but rather it's about a human who's unclean, who's made clean, and now you can partake in community together in the fellowship of the saints. So unclean would always have been considered Gentiles. Don't mess with them. Don't live with them. Don't partake with them. They're the pigs. But now God has made clean everything that is unclean, which is bringing us into family. We can partake of one another in relationship. But yet they're still kind of wrestling with this idea of what's good for the conscience. Can I eat this? Can I not eat this? Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So he's basically saying here, you might find someone who in their own understanding do not know of the freedom that there is when it comes to what God has provided for us. 
they might still have issues with whether or not you eat bacon. And so if you participate in eating bacon, when they see it as something that is unclean, and you are at the same time trying to proclaim a holy lifestyle of living, they're seeing something that's in contradictory to itself. You're not living out what you believe. And therefore would cause them to stumble to now start living out something that is not within the beliefs of Scripture. Probably one of the, the easiest ways to look at that in our current culture, and I don't see it as much here in the Midwest as I do in the South, but I was brought up in a culture where if you had a root beer bottle in your hand in public, you were a raging alcoholic. Like that's the culture that I was brought up in. And so there was constantly this, this kind of um, imposed view of we just don't talk about alcohol when everyone in the church is drinking it, essentially. But the majority of people, it's either like locked up in a cabinet that no one goes to when it's in the house and you're inviting guests over, no one's talking about it. Or I mean, it's just very taboo in the South because alcohol is the devil's poison even though we see Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding as his first miracle. Not condoning drunkenness, but is inviting people to drink alcohol. And like, I know there's always the kind of the arguments of like, yeah, well, his alcohol wasn't, you know, 100% proof. Like, it's Jesus. He doesn't make anything bad, okay? Like, he made good liquor. And they drank of it. So anyways, that's a whole nother side. But like, that's kind of what we're talking about in our culture is there's people in the South that when I was on staff at a church, if they were to see me having a beer in a restaurant, they would not listen to what I have to teach on Sunday morning. Or they would keep their kids away from me as a youth pastor because they don't want me to raise their kids or bring their kids up in a way that they would see that as a freedom. So this was the reality. So because of that, even though we had the freedom to exercise drinking, a lot of times, and especially amongst staff in churches in the South, is we will refrain or abstain from our freedom in order for us to be able to have a greater effectiveness of ministry to the people that are in this culture. So we just sacrifice the freedom. We lay it aside for the sake of those who are around us. And so by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He's saying, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that I do not cause my brothers to stumble because what is more important to me is their salvation rather than my personal enjoyment of eating meat or my personal enjoyment of drinking alcohol or my personal enjoyment of whatever it is fill in the blank. So in chapter 9, he then gets into kind of arguing this some more. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. 
Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. What he's ultimately saying here is there is a ministry that they are given that they are also able to partake of from that ministry. So if that ministry is to the ministry of eating and drinking, then they are free to partake of the eating and drinking. They do not have to withhold from that. They are free to do whatever the scriptures are commending to them as freedom to partake of. If, if, if they are called to a town in which they are to preach Proclaim, make disciples, plant churches, and in that they are able to call and receive a living from the church, from the community of faith, in order for them to continue preaching and proclaiming. That's their right. That's what he's saying here. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Absolutely. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not have it even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is is a, a different animal when it comes to a lot of his practices. Paul would say that when it comes to moving into a town and creating a church, And in the planting of that church, I've got needs that are met, that need to be met. I need housing, I need transportation, I need food, I need clothing, I need all those things. It's his right as an apostle to call in a ministry of tithes and offerings in order for him to be able to continue doing the work of ministry. He's saying that's my right. When it comes to food, when it comes to eating and drinking... He's saying, it's my right as an apostle to partake of and eat and drink anything that God has blessed us with. Under the sun that God has created. It's my right to be able to do that. But what he ultimately gets down to is this idea that even though it was my right, I did not exercise the right in order for greater ministry to be able to be made. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You see, what Paul's getting at here is the heart of his ministry. 
he knows that these churches are arguing essentially consumerism. They're arguing, arguing constantly, what can we eat and what can we not drink? What can we do and what can we not do? What can we partake in and what can we not partake in? It's constantly this idea of how can you, and, and what they're saying, the church kind of to the leadership, how can you produce a doctrine and a theology that's going to best serve me and my wants and my desires that are then going to lead to essentially their view of an American dream? I want to be able to live it up and have the best of the best of the best. And so we need you to put together a doctrine and a theology that fits what we are longing for. And so what Paul is doing, essentially from the top down, is saying, I'm laying aside all of those rights to display to you what is of utmost importance. The gospel being preached. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. I have nothing to boast in. He said, I don't have a large house. I don't have a fat 401k. I don't have retirement all planned out. I don't have all of those things. I, I'm not living in the best of the five-star restaurants and this and that. What he's saying is I've laid aside all of those things for the sake of the gospel being preached and proclaimed. This is what he's entrusted to steward. Verse 18, what then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to take full use of my right in the gospel? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And this is where we get this language that he also sees in Acts 16. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Think about it. We have Gentile Timothy, who's raised in kind of a dual culture, having a Jewish mother who's a believer and having a Gentile father who's not. And for the sake of him having a ministry to the Jews, I will become a Jew. I will publicly be displayed through circumcision to allegiance to the Jews in order that I might have conversations with the Jews to share the gospel with them. I'm willing to lay down even a cultural thing in order to become a different culture so that I might win part of that culture. That I might be able to take the gospel to them. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law. What he's saying is I would practice ceremonial law with people in order to have a conversation with them about the gospel, although knowing well that practicing ceremonial law does nothing for my salvation, does nothing for my justification. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And this, one, this one's very black and white when it comes down to the South. Because in the South, if you want to be a good Christian, go to Cracker Barrel after church. If you want to go into the world, go to a brewery. Go to a bar. 
Because as soon as you walk into the door, they're thinking you're living outside the gospel. You're living outside Christianity. You're participating in something that is not Christ-like. That's what they would say. And this is what Paul is essentially talking about here, is I'm willing to step into places that ceremonially people would look at me and say, you are not living under God's law anymore. But he knows that it's not based on external matters that are at play here, but rather internally within his heart, he understands that I can walk into this place. I can be in the world, but I'm not of the world. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do this all for the sake of the gospel. That I may share with them in its blessings. We are in a society, a culture right now that as it was said in the confession, we are me-centered. We are me-centered. And, and I don't think that's just society and culture. I think that has absolutely bled itself into the church. Absolutely bled itself into the church. And, and I'm not even just saying this from like a them versus us. I'm saying these are the temptations that I war with in my own heart and mind at all times. When I think about a hospitality ministry... I think about how can we better serve people in order to get them into our church. And that sounds all great and well. But the way that that then functionally plays out is, let's get you the best coffee. Let's get you some gifts. Let's get you, like we're Santa Claus to them, hoping that they'll be good rather than bad. Let's just provide some things for you. And now, yes, I know that we preach the gospel. And there can be arguments and there are so many debates on kind of like what you do at the front door in order to get them in. And as long as you're still preaching the gospel, that's okay. But at the same time, I want our actions to display what we believe. What we truly believe about the gospel. That if we strip down everything... And it's just the gospel. And that's all we have left. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when I say gospel, it's evangelion, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. A lot of times we don't know what the gospel is. We don't know that in the beginning when God created mankind, that they were good. And then they rebelled because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be equal to God. And so they, they, they decided to do something against God that caused a fracture in creation, that caused separation between them and God. They sinned against Him. They did not listen. They did not trust Him. And so there was a broken relationship now between them and God. And they were dying. And not just dying to just a physical death, but an eternal separation, death from God. From their ultimate joy. From their ultimate satisfaction. From their ultimate life. They're now in death. And it's not just only in physical death, eternal death, but it's in death in relationship to both themselves. 
Husband and wife are now warring, wanting to destroy each other and rule over one another. And for those who are in this room who are married, that's your natural bent is to want to destroy and rule over each other. And that's why you have to have a gospel-centered marriage is because we're constantly fighting the brokenness that happened in the very beginning every single day. And because of that, we then have passed down through history the Israelites where God constantly is granting to them kings and prophets and, and, and literally like a way of doing things, ceremonial law, that all of these things they wanted but never actually provided for them full satisfaction, never actually provided for them a righteousness way of living. And so what they needed was a better king, a better prophet, a better high priest, a better law. They needed something better than all the things that were given to them. And what that ultimately was, was Jesus Christ himself, God incarnate, coming in the form of a man, fully man, fully God, in order to fulfill all of what God required in order for righteousness to be made to bring us back into a relationship with him. Because without being perfect, we can't be in a relationship with God. And so the Israelites never attained perfection through their kings and through their prophets and through their priests and through their ceremonial laws. They never made it there. And at the same time, we are never going to make it there, this side of the law, if it's not for Jesus Christ. If it's not for Him living the perfect life that you and I should live but can't live. And then Him dying the death that you and I deserve, we owe, that's our debt to God that is, that is rightly in place. And he places that death on Jesus Christ at the cross, earning for us not only righteousness in his life, but also taking our unrighteousness and placing it on himself so that he could absorb the wrath of God. We were standing in the path of the wrath of God, but that wrath of God poured out on us would be eternal damnation. Only God can absorb the wrath of God. And therefore, Jesus Christ had to come and die on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God, dying for every single one of us in this room. And then three days later, resurrecting, coming back to life, ascending into heaven, and being seated at the right hand of God on a throne in which all authority is His, declaring... That all authority being his means that he gets to impute his righteousness that he just earned for us. And the unrighteousness that he takes from us, he is depositing that to the account of those who by faith believe in him. That gospel message alone builds the church. Builds the church. It does not matter how trendy we look. It does not matter how put together 
and perfect and nuanced ministries are. This is why we joke. Like right now, you don't even know what to call our groups. Some call them life groups. Some call them community groups. Some still call them missional groups. We don't care. Because all that matters is that in those groups, we are centering sinners around the table and what you are partaking of is the gospel. The gospel. And that we're speaking it into the lives of one another. You can't do it. You can't earn it. You will not be perfect in your life. But who was perfect? Jesus was. And because he was perfect, and because you were becoming like him in your sanctification, we're going to look to him, not to you. We're going to trust him, not you. Like, I love when you give me advice, but I want to see your advice tied to what Jesus said, not just what you think. And I want the same in return. Don't take what we say on a Sunday morning at just face value. Research it. Where are we getting our information from? Because if it's not from the scriptures, if it's not from the gospel that is the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of human history, then we're not giving you anything that you can't go and get from watching a show of Oprah or watching or, or going and reading a self-help book. Like We're just motivational speakers if it's not grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. We're unapologetic about the centrality of the gospel. That's why in our vision, we want gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered discipleship, and gospel-centered multiplication because we understand that you cannot worship without the gospel, that we will not make disciples without the gospel, and that you will not multiply without the gospel. You will not have true biblical community without the gospel. We need it. It's not just for justification. It's not just for salvation. It's not just for when the fifth grader shared with me as a seventh grader the gospel and I became a Christian and now I move on from the gospel to other deeper theological and doctrinal truths that are found in Scripture. No, the gospel is the fuel that drives all of those things and that is the foundation upon which I grow in the study of God. If it's not through the lens of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, then it's wrong. It's wrong. And so because of the gospel, I'm willing to lay aside my freedoms and my preferences for the sake of others coming to know him. That's what we're after. This idea of Paul and Timothy is they're putting the needs of others before their own wants and desires. And this is, again, this is so anti what is just a wave that is moving through our church culture right now. Is what can we preach and proclaim that would give you the greatest desires of your heart and I would say, if the greatest desires of your heart are not for Christ to be magnified, regardless of your wealth, regardless of your health, 
regardless of those things, if it's not Christ magnified and it's improved my bank account, improved my physical health, improved those things, then you don't trust the gospel. You don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. Because when we look at the guys who had the right to have health, wealth, and prosperity, however you want to look at it, who's second to Paul? John the Baptist, Jesus said in Luke 2, is the greatest man who ever lived. And yet John the Baptist was called to a ministry that was out in the wilderness. He made White House look like a metropolitan city. He's out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey as a diet who was called to abstain from alcohol his entire life. Which again is not normative across scripture. He tells Timothy, drink some wine every single night for your stomach. So we're not saying it's anti-alcohol. He's just, he was called to abstain from alcohol. And at the end of his ministry, finds himself in prison getting beheaded because of the request of a stripper. The greatest man ever lived, according to Jesus. That's his life. For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of Jesus Christ. Stephen. Stoned. As, a, as, as literally. The reward of his faithfulness. Is being stoned. Peter. Really we call the first senior pastor of the church. Like the big church crucified upside down as a reward of his faithful ministry. The beloved John that Jesus loved so dearly, the Apostle John, boiled alive and didn't die, and it so freaked the people out that they then exiled him to this random island. The gospel message is not come to Jesus and your life's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. You're going to get at all your desires, all your hopes, all your dreams. That's not the gospel message. The true gospel message is come to know Jesus as your greatest hope, your greatest satisfaction, your greatest desire, your greatest want. In him, you will truly find happiness and peace and contentment. And all of that is probably going to happen in a life that is full of despair, destruction, persecution, suffering, struggle, strife, trials, tribulation. The Bible promises this. We have to stop selling it as a bill of goods. We have to start proclaiming it as the only thing that's going to provide people true hope. True hope. So let's lay aside, lay down what we think are the preferences and freedoms that are going to truly give us any sense of happiness. We've got to lay those things down we got to cling to Jesus Christ. Let's cling to Him. Let's see Him as our greatest treasure and our greatest affection. 
And from there, let him be the fuel and the source that takes that message outside of us to those around us so that we can actually give them something of value and worth that they cannot find in the consumerism of this world. Let's be willing to do that. Father, we thank you so much for this good news. It is good news. It's difficult news, but it's good news. At times, it's hard news to swallow, but it's still good news. God, I pray that we would be a church full of individuals who are willing to lay aside freedoms that are our right. Lay aside those freedoms for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be able to go forth to those who don't know him. That's what makes our joy complete is seeing others come to faith in Christ. Lord, make us uncomfortable. Stretch us. Discipline us. Chastise us. Do whatever you have to do in order to draw us back to you so that it's about you and not about us. Jesus, we want you to be seen. May you increase and may we decrease. For it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. As we come to communion, I mean, it's communion. <laughs> it's, it's what Jesus was willing to do. I mean, you talk about laying aside his right. I mean, he left culture of heaven. The adoration, worship, and praise of a legion of angels telling him every single day how amazing and beautiful and awesome he is. He left that in order to come God incarnate to be born in a manger, to grow up as a carpenter, to then be despised even in his own hometown, to ultimately go to the path of having everything stripped from him. And was it, I mean, it was his right at any moment he could have cast down a legion of angels and just wiped out those who were persecuting him. But instead, he laid his life down on their behalf that God might forgive them of their evil. Man, that's, that's us. <laughs> God breaking his body and shedding his blood so that we have the opportunity to receive forgiveness from him. Worship him in this time for what he has done for us. And it's done. Nothing you have to do. It's done. The work is done. We receive it. We accept it. We are thankful for it. And in that, we worship. We worship. 
The gospel is not meant to create doers. It's meant to create worshipers. Let's worship. Let's worship him in this time. Let's partake of communion together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at